Herna. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you on finally. Thanks for having me. This has been a long time coming. (laughs) I feel like we've been talking about uh, sharing a platform together for a while. And so I'm very excited to have you. Uh, Would love for you to just give a little bit of background. I know you and I've had some time to spend some time together in Seattle, but tell the audience who you are, what you do, and what's the impact you're looking to make on the world? Oh, just that. What's the impact I'm looking to make in the world? Well, um, just a small question. Nothing, nothing too hard. (laughs) No big deal. Um, Well, my name is Aparna and Aparna Ray, founder of a strategy practice based here in Seattle, Washington called Moving Beyond that I started three and a half years ago um, and have been riding the post George Floyd wave of you know more and more organizations wanting to do DEI work and the the thing that i focus on and that you and i bonded over right when we we became friends via linkedin mm-hmm. um what was and is data informed equity work um not relying on gut instincts not you know chasing whatever like the sexy new thing is but really thinking about the state of the state of our organizations and building solutions that are are right-sized. My background is in education. I was a public school teacher. I was a lecturer in teacher education programs, Um, did a bunch of work in sort of workforce development uh, before finding my way here. So I feel like a lot of what I do and how I lead in this work is very much as that first profession, my very first career as an educator in building good habits around learning. Love that. And the impact you're looking to make on the world, is that aligned with, with, with that mission that you just talked about and habits and behaviors and learning? Yeah, it's, you know, this is, it's, it's a really good question. Cause I, I think if you had asked me even six months ago, what, what was the impact that I was looking to make in the world? I would have had a different answer, but I think this summer, um, I have really been sitting with the need for a future of work. That's perhaps less informed by technologies that can aid us, but much more informed by relationship and well-being and happiness mm. and, I'm honestly like the work that I, I want to keep doing is be an advocate for labor. I, th- I think at the end of the day, when I look about my my career trajectory, a lot of it, it has been fighting to make sure that no one's labor is devalued to a point where they're living in poverty um, and I think it's it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about it's it's something that I spend a lot of time advocating with my clients about how do we, you know, like what is, what is DEI inside of an organization where two thirds of your employees are living in poverty? I just don't know that there is a world in which we can say we were doing equity work or justice work and have such vast class differences inside of organizations. Hmm. Yeah, and that makes me think about how perhaps we're not quite looking at DE&I collectively as a community. You know, DE&I practitioners, 
people who are within organizations, the one thing that I see quite often is this just like, let's carve out this program called DEI and do all the things to demonstrate we're doing DEI without mm-hmm. the, the contextual systems work. When I say systems work, I mean within the organization, but also socially, which I think is coming to your your point around the intersection between social impact, social justice, and the workplace, which really gets me excited because that's a lot of the work that we do at Call for Culture. And um, again, it's the reason why you and I bonded and uh, had some time to really talk through and visualize what a future of work could look like. So I guess I'm skirting around a question, which is, uh, what are some things that you're seeing that companies, leaders are getting wrong about this work? Oh, what am I seeing that people are getting wrong about this? Well, you know, I think you said it right, like contextual systems work. The work that's happening right now is it's designed, it's designed to fail. Mm. Um, It's so when I when I was a, a public school teacher, there would be an activity that would happen every year in the elementary school where, you know, the art teacher would make these totem poles made out of toilet paper or paper towel, like the, the blank rolls. Right. And it was it was this lesson on indigenous cultures without really ever diving deep into who indigenous people are like where they live where they live right that that Mm. we have indigenous folk um all over the world right like it's not specific to the u.s or canada right also like india and australia Mm -hmm. and new zealand and i feel like the way in which i see dni work happening is akin to the toilet paper totem poles where we're making a nod to something without ever digging into what it is and things that that folks are getting wrong i mean i have a laundry list but i'll give you my favorites right um using employee engagement surveys or inclusion surveys as fact rather than a moment in time view of how people are thinking and feeling. Um, Employee resource groups and DEI councils that are uh, being asked to come up with org-wide strategy and programming when they actually have no expertise in the functional areas that a practitioner needs, uh, which I would say, you know, are learning and development, strategy, people analytics, right? Like you have folks who are passionate about equity work or whatever they think equity work is and are being asked to make decisions on behalf of an organization that should quite frankly be hiring people that has functional, that have functional expertise. Um, Too many consultants. And, you know, I say this knowing that you and I are also consultants. Um, Why are you hiring consultants when you should be doing two things, which in my mind are building capacity of everybody in your organization to work with an equity lens. And the second is have, you know, dedicated staff to make this work sticky inside of your organization. And in particular, when 
organizations are not listening to what their employees are saying, but instead bringing in consultants who say essentially the same thing. And lately, I've also been sitting with the fact that, you know, with several of our clients and customers, like we as consultants make more than employees inside of their organizations for doing a tenth of the time, right? Mm. Like we're coming into organizations, spending 10 hours a month with them and making more than what a full-time employee makes in a similar role. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that that's a it's an interesting point because I think it speaks to a few things. One is the the lack of trust and um the lack of honoring of experiences of employees at lower levels within the organization. I hear a lot of times when, I, when I'm talking to, to leaders, to executives, it's kind of this like brushing them off mentality of, oh, that's, that's just, that's just so-and-so or so-and-so's group. You know, they just have a, they've had a grudge for years. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, they're hiring us to come in to basically tell you the same thing. Uh, and the, the capacity and the capability conversation is so important. Because we, we, when we work with our clients, we tell them up front, we are not actually doing the work. We're going to guide you through, a, a, you know, what this could look like, but we need to coach you and coach you up as we go because we want to work ourselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be with you for years and years and a lifetime. <laughs> we want you to be self-sufficient and sustainable. And a lot of times we lose business because of that. Yeah. Because they're like, I just want you to do the thing. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> doesn't work that way. Yeah. The, I want you to do the thing. I, I also want to say it has, it's, there is, there's a race element and a class element to that as well. Um, we're both women of color doing this work, you know? So I think like my perspective certainly is, is in in my identity of mm-hmm. in the United States being a person of color. Um, even though where I'm, I'm from, which is India, I would never identify myself as a person of color, right? Um, like where you're from, you would never identify as a person of color. We're just people um, and we're part of the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and, and I feel like because so many of the decision makers that are ultimately going to sign off on, on the contracts and the scopes of work for them, I'm the help. Mm. And this is, this is part of dealing with the legacy of race and systemic oppression in this in this context right in the context of the united states and and also you know i suppose like other like predominantly white high income countries where because women that have looked like me and look like you up until 30 40 50 years ago were only allowed were only allowed to be in helping professions that legacy is strong and so it's not only is it I want you to do what I'm asking you to do, but it's also, how dare you? How dare you say something else? 
How dare you, you have an opinion? How dare you think you're an expert? Hmm. So why do you think, um, because I, I really resonate with what you're saying, because I've heard those words in, in so many words, right? Like, we wanted to know the truth, but not, not like that. Or we thought you were going to recommend training or something else. We're, we're not asking for that. And it's it seems like an exhausting position to be in. <laughs> um, so I, I, I feel, you know, anyone who's listening to this and is in the DEI community who is doing the work, I mean, really doing the work, right? We're working it with systems within organizations, working within social systems to make change. It's exhausting. Um, so why why are organizations hiring us? Why why do we see this like uptick of demand, but a, a low level of commitment? Mm, yeah. Why do we see the uptick of demand, but low level of commitment? Um, I think because white folks and people with privilege that doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, from their racial identity, they, they want to look good. They want to feel good about themselves. And, but I think at the end of the day, whether it's understood or spoken fundamentally, fundamentally, they understand that a world that is more equitable a world that is more inclusive and where we're not beholden to rules of professionalism that, um, you know, overvalue white identities, white hair, white ways of dressing. Well, in that world, they get to have less power. I mean, I, just think of like the, the simple, like simple fact, if organizations promoted people relative to who is entering into frontline roles inside of their organizations, mm. the, the corner offices and, you know, the board, the boards of directors, those spaces would look really different. Those spaces would actually look really different. And so we're playing a game in which the odds are already stacked for the other side, because the other side knows that if things were in fact equitable, they would lose. Now, what I see happening, and this is where, you know, I so, so, so want for better analysis and better sort of consciousness with our colleagues that are people of color is organizations will fly their, you know, equity flag. They're going to come out and say, well, of course, we care about this. Of course, we want to, you know, like you're important to us as our employees, as our customers, as our community. And people of color start to think, oh, like, thank you. Like you heard me. And two or three years go by and nothing has changed. And in many instances, they, they've left. They've left and the cycle kind of, you know, repeats itself, right? Where they're, they're, they're not really committed to changing. They don't actually want the C-suite to look different. They're not going to name people to the board of directors that, that are, you know, truly diverse across so many of, right? So many identities. Mm -hmm. They want, they want to look good. Mm. 
So it's a perception. Well, we talk about performative DEI quite a bit. And I think we've, you know, what I've witnessed and it aligns with what you've observed is there's usually like some kind of event that jolts us, mm-hmm. you know, awake as a, as a nation, yeah. as a country, as a state, as a, you know, whatever it is, or something that happens where we say, oh yeah, racism exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Floyd being murdered is one of those instances um, that I think is more prominent culturally um, in the U.S., but there's many others. And it is kind of this this cycle, this like, you know, this curve, right, where things rev up and then they just, and now you've got the backlash that we're seeing around DEI. So how do we disrupt that cycle? I mean, I, I truly like I, I'm really asking this question, not from just a host perspective, but I would love for us to find some some common ground as a DEI community around what we should and should not do to make sure we don't end up in that cycle again. So what are your mm. thoughts? Maybe you don't have the answers, but what are your thoughts? Ooh, what we should and should not do. Well, I think, okay, let's start with what we should do. I think we should be investing in upskilling ourselves. Mm. I think that we should be building skills around data literacy. Like you don't have to learn how to build, you know, like dashboards, but you need to learn how to read them. Mm -hmm. You need to learn how to ask questions. And I, and I think that in my mind, it's not dissimilar to knowing how to build budgets and read P and L's. Like if you're going to be in a leadership role in any organization, you, you have to do that. And so I would say, like, how do we start to skill up? Um, What should we do? I think that we should be having more honest conversations with our clients. And And I think that if more consultants were willing to do it, what the client is asking for is gonna shift. And also internal clients or internal consultants too, right? So talking to chief diversity officers, all all of the the, the new titles that have popped up, I think the relationship is the same where you're kind of an internal consultant. Maybe you're speaking with the CEO or the C-suite, but I, the same thing applies, I think internally too, to your point. Yeah. What should we not, what should we not be doing? Uh, I mean, I think that that's, that feels really hard, I think, to name because when I've named some of the things that we shouldn't be doing, the pushback that I've gotten from the community of practitioners is, well, I'm just out here trying to make money or why should I not be able to leverage this moment in time? So in my mind, the things that we shouldn't be doing is having a training only based approach to how we engage clients. We know that it causes more harm and it causes more harm to people of color in the long run. So why are, why are we doing it? And when I, when I talk about it, people will say, well, you know, I'm allowed, I'm allowed to make a living. I'm great. Absolutely. You're allowed to make a living. And then what, what is the ethical or moral bar for practitioners? Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what should we What should we not do? Like if you are white identifying and you don't in fact have functional expertise, like you shouldn't be doing this work. Mm. And 
also for white adjacent folks, right? Um, I've seen an uptick in South Asian practitioners in this work. When I went to grad school to study decolonizing pedagogy in 2007, um, I did not have any South Asian colleagues that were interested in having these conversations. When I came into the workforce for the second time in 2009, in the middle of an economic recession, wrought upon us by essentially white men in positions of power, no, like South Asians were not part of the mix. They were not willing to have the conversation. And I've noticed that I'm not going to speak about any other communities of color, right? Except the one that I'm a part of. All of a sudden, in the last three to five years, there's a large community of corporate DEI professionals that are South Asian women whose backgrounds are in law and engineering and Marcom. And I want to know, like, why are you here? Hmm. Why are you here? Have you done the work? Have you like gone and unlearned everything that our culture teaches us about people from like places and spaces, right? Like what mm-hmm. do we value? I mean, anti-blackness is is really deep in the South Asian community. Like we're an incredibly like cult like culturally th- there's a lot of xenophobia. There mm-hmm. are lots of class dynamics where it's not uncommon for people to literally come out and ask you how much money you make because they're trying to place whether you're a person that's worth knowing. Mm-hmm. What do your parents do? What's your last name? Where did you study, right? Constantly trying to place your class identity. And so I want, like, I want other practitioners to ask themselves, like, am I the right person to be doing this work? Yeah. And I I think that's really, really where this work needs to go. And I sometimes, I, I sometimes play around with the idea of just, deconstructing it all right like I know DEI is a buzzword and you and I know what it means because we we've we've studied it we've researched it we've done the work we've applied the work and also we are we are unlearning and learning as we go but I mean what what are your thoughts on that that topic of just throwing it all away and maybe I don't know calling it something else because my fear is that we're rather than us getting to the change that needs to happen, the mindset shift, the behavior shift, we love to just slap on a title and then that becomes an industry. And once it becomes an industry, now it's in the ecosystem of capitalism. And now, yes, of course, you're going to get people who are trying to capitalize on it. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, throw it in the trash. (laughs) I burn it, burn the trash. But I don't know that that supports, you know, our climate crisis. So maybe bury the trash, um, make less trash. But yeah, I'm 100%, you know, like, yeah, let's throw it out. Um, What are other ways of working? Who are the people that we, you know, quite frankly, should be learning from? And There are so few leaders and lessons from corporate DE&I that I'm excited by Mm. because it's, 
it's just, it's Cosmo girl capitalism, you know, it's that it's the shiny kind of Barbie plastic ways of working. Um, some of the things that I've been reading and I, I felt, um, I've, I felt inspired isn't even the right word, right? It's, it's almost like in my soul, I felt resonance with, um, Against White Feminism by Rafia Zakaria. She's a Pakistani American academic. And I've I've now read her book a couple of times. And every time I, I, I read it, I come back to it. And, you know, she talks about how white feminism isn't just something that's embodied by white women. It's also that women of color, like we've we've started to own it and and how we've been so quick to do away with the resilience and the lessons that our our ancestors like our moms our grandmothers have mm -hmm. to teach us um just because they don't have a job outside of the home doesn't mean that they're not empowered women right and so mm -hmm. i've been really leaning into some of those ideas. Of course, I think Adrienne Marie Brown and mm -hmm. her work and her scholarship of Octavia Butler's ideas around building community and building community doesn't have to be woo, right? Because Octavia Butler's, so many of her books are around community that advances science, that community that advances mm -hmm being able to live on this planet for many more years, many more generations. Um, reading the work and scholarship of Deepak Bhargav, who recently wrote an article uh, on deliverism, and he writes mm -hmm. about how the left and the right are not very different. And it's something that I've been sitting with for a couple of years where I'm like, well, the, the economic policies and their impact aren't actually very different, whether there's a Democrat or a Republican in, in the White House. Um, mm. And so what does it mean to be progressive? Mm. And in the article, he there's one sentence that's really stayed with me. And he talks about how there's never been never before have there been so many people with the title organizer and never has there been a moment where foundations have funded organizing, but with so little actual organizing happening, right? Mm -hmm. So people have the title, people are throwing money at the concept of organizing, but very little organizing is actually happening. And so, yeah, how do we shift into the mindsets and habits and behaviors of organizers and activists that are interested in building community. And I don't mean chief. I don't mean paying five, seven, ten thousand dollars to be in an elite network. But how are we building communities? And I and as a woman of color in, in the US context, I think about where where are my peers? Where are my sisters? they're not like urban professionals making six-figure salaries. Mm. They are frontline workers. And so is, is the work that I'm doing, is that having a positive impact on their lives? 
am I in community with them? And am, am I in relationship with them? Do I know what their lives are like? And I think the answer for most of us, um, six figure earning women of color, urban, like intellectual progressive types. We're not in those communities. Mm. We don't know. We don't know the reality and the lived experiences of somebody who is, you know, like a public school teacher or a nurse or working in a, in a grocery store. And, and we, we need to. Hmm. Yeah. It, it's really what I'm realizing is, is two things. One is getting, getting back to community and, and really not just observing, but um, immersing ourselves in, in, in the people we claim to serve. Uh, and the other piece I think is really around this idea of naming the issues. You know, I think if we did a better job at actually naming the issues within, let's say, the workplace, right? Uh, how, how do we address systemic racism at work? <laughs> That's an issue that would take probably a community of people to solve and to focus on. Uh, focusing on how do we become an organization that is uh, responsible in the communities where we build, for example. That's an mm -hmm. issue to focus on. I would love to hear more of I would love to hear more of that versus the big DEI B umbrella <laughs> of all the all the things that sound I don't know you know ar around social impact or or um, progressing um, you know the workplace from a cultural like I would love to hear us just name the issues mm. and because I think when we bucket everything under DEI it does become an industry just like wellness right wellness is is, is its own industry which also ties into social issues. So yeah, the, what you just said, it really hits home for me. And what are the, like, what are the decisions that we would make, quite frankly, if, if people, community was at the heart of problem solving, for instance, you know, and I, and I think about, you and I both have some experience working in, in foundations, right. In, in big private philanthropy. And, and I, and I think about this all the time with the Gates foundation literally being in my backyard is if the foundation was really interested in solving the education crisis, right. Like if they were really interested in making sure that there was education um, equity, what choices would they make? Because the choices that they're making today, right? Whether that is Bill Gates paying to sway the vote and introducing charter schools in the state of Washington, um, mm -hmm. or, you know, prioritizing technology-based solutions to, you know, math and literacy, these are not the choices that get black and brown and poor kids into better colleges and into better paying jobs. Hmm. They, they, they just don't, you know? So, hmm. and, and the same, I think is true. Like it, in companies as it relates to employee experience, right? Like 
What if we prioritized happiness? What if we prioritized well-being? What if the measure was um, fewer people suffering from heart disease? I mean, the fact that engineers, Mm. particularly men in and around 40 years old, are the fastest growing demographic of people suffering from heart disease. Like That's wild to me. Mm. Why are 40-year-old men getting heart attacks? What if, right? Like, what if the DEI bar for success at Amazon was fewer engineers having heart attacks? Mm. What if the bar is fewer people's, you know, partnerships, marriages disintegrating? Like, Mm. why is it that every time Microsoft ships a major product, a third of the people working on it are like on the path to breakups and divorces? Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's, like I said, throw it all away. Just throw it all away. Deconstruct it, reconstruct it. And I think this goes back to, and I'll kind of tie the bow on this, even though I feel like you and I can, first of all, I learn so much from you every time I talk to you. And two, we could probably go off into a million different topics, but I'm bringing it back to data because I think people listening might be thinking, oh my gosh, you're talking about some really meaty issues. The whole point of data and using it as a tool is to help you narrow in on those issues and help you name the issues that you can then address and solve. And so I think what I'm landing with is it's underlying the importance of having a data-centric approach as a tool, also listening to the people that you are saying you're serving. Mm-hmm. And then using those two things together to identify what the issues are. DEI, I think, is just too broad. We need to mm-hmm. really identify what are the issues. Let's name them. Mm-hmm. And then we can work on systems, tactics, decisions, policies, behavior change, mindset change to move in that direction. So that's where I landed. Where, where did you land? What are some things that you're leaving with today? Yeah, yeah, I so here's I mean here's where I, I am in this moment is we we need we need the data to know what's happening. Mm-hmm. But we need the relationships mm. to believe that it's true. Mm. Yes. Absolutely. I love that just powerful statement. Aparna, I always learn something new from you. So thank you so much for taking the time. Same. And you'll have to come back because I think all these things are, you know, highly contextual uh, in in the context of what's happening in the world. And so I I bet you a month from now, we'd probably have a different conversation, but um, just so relevant and actionable. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me.